Welcome to the Urban Wine Club podcast. Pour a glass, sit back, and enjoy the show. Without talking too much, because we got plenty of guests that want to listen to Susanna, let's welcome Susanna. Susanna, thank you so much for doing this with us. You're very welcome. Um, I'm actually not quite sure where to start. Um, we well, we you know what, to- Susanna? Can you can you? I, I, a lot of our viewers know you and uh, have probably seen you on previous segments, but I would love if you could just give us just a little bit of your history, maybe a summary, like just anything interesting about you um, that that people who don't know who you are could just kind of. There's get not, up to speed. There's not enough time for that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, I've looked into her credentials. Yeah, it, it'll take a long time. But that's why I say a brief history. <laughs> well, I am from Denver, Colorado, of all strange places. I am not an <laughs> East Coast person. I'm a Westerner. And it was a city that was um, full of Greeks and Jews and Armenians. Um, it was the merchandising capital. Um market, you know, the, for the mining, for all the mining that went on in the, um, uh, and all the travel West. So it had all the kinds of people who open stores and are merchants, um, like Birmingham, like San Francisco, like Salt Lake even. Um, and so I grew up in a situation where there were so many people of so many ethnicities around that I often claim that I didn't want to become a psychologist because they were too sophisticated. They were dealing with who they were, and I was back at what. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, I went on from there to Berkeley. Um, I got my doctorate in anthropology, and I decided that I wanted to do most of the studies of a a certain kind of theoretical branch had been done in very isolated societies. And I wanted to show that if they were true, that they would be also true of a society that had had um, literature and writing and philosophy uh, um, and known religion from very, very early on. And um, I picked Indo-European and of those, obviously, the oldest that we really could follow would be um, Greek. And so I not only did, so I chose Greece and then I chose to go to a place where there was the earliest Greek writing, which was Santorini. And um, also it had 3000 churches. Um, and so I thought they were into symbolism. It wow. turns out it was just a Cadillac. When you got <laughs> to see enough, you could do your own chapel. And I, it was before Santorini became a big hit. And so I lived in a cave for two and a half years in a little backward village. <laughs> and you'll be, I go you'll be back fought these two years in a cave over in uh, North Shore there. Not to cut you off, Suzanne, but those caves that you're talking about are big money today to stay there. <laughs> they, they're all they're Airbnbs. They're expensive. They're very expensive to stay there today. Yeah. Those caves that you were at. But anyways, go on. <laughs> now, yeah, the one I knew is pretty much gone. But um, I have Baptistira there. I have a, a goddaughter and a god granddaughter, and everybody in the village knows me. And so I go back almost every year. And That's so cool. yeah. Um, my Greek has gotten a little rusty because, uh, I haven't been speaking it enough, but it's still fluent and, uh, pretty fluent, at least for the kinds of things you talk about in a little village is perfect. (laughs) And, um, I'm probably the only person walking around who still knows the verbs for a threshing wheat 
and winnowing wheat and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> I, when I say those to Greeks, they're, they're, they don't even know them. So, uh, and I know all of the lullabies and things you say at a wedding, sing at a wedding or a newborn child or kolava. So oh. it was pretty intense. Um, and I worked my way around the village uh, from just, I tried to isolate them, uh, me with, uh, with just the young girls. And I broke through that and I finally was with the married women. And then one night I decided to burst into the place where all the men gathered in the village store. And of course they were stunned that a woman would come in like that. And uh, they were all sitting in all the chairs. And so I sat down and the only thing that, that, that seemed still available, it looked like a bench. And I sat there and chatted till they kind of got used to me. And it was only months later that I realized I was sitting on the salt cod. <laughs> I often wonder who got the top layer. <laughs> anyway, quickly, other other than that, um, and my specialty in the last twenty years has been risk and disaster, and I'm, I'm um, a specialist in uh, the anthropology of disasters. I have about four books or five books out on that. I have four in process. Um, but I don't want to lose touch with um, working with Greece and, and on food. In the meantime, I wrote um, um, several cookbooks, my, um, putting the kids through schools. And the big fat one that I love the most is, where is it? The Olive and the Caper. Mm-hmm. That's our all-time favorite. Yeah, a great, great, great book. Which is 600 pages, and it's almost more stories than it is recipes. But it's a modern take on many, many Greek dishes and a lot of inventive ones. And what we're doing tonight, uh, we decided, we talked it over, did I want to do a classic dip um, or did we want to take it uh, more modern and use Greek ingredients and go in a more modern direction? And so tonight we're doing a mint parsley um, pesto with a lot of, with garlic and pine nuts, typically pesto, kefalotiri or Parmesan, depending what you can get a hold of. And uh, obviously olive oil and currants from um, uh, Zakynthos. And those currants have the eye keep soaked in retsina. Mm. So they're in my refrigerator all the time in um, a little thing, soaking away happily in retsina. So if I can can interject real quick, Susanna, for those of our guests that are wondering what is retsina, retsina is a white wine that's... When it's fermenting, it's fermenting with a little bit of um, cuttings from or a, a cubes of sap from a pine tree that goes into the fermentation process that produces a very herbal uh, scented flavored white wine. Now, the use of pine and the pine scent is uh, um, pervasive in a lot of Greek dishes. For instance, Greece alone produces a pine honey um, in which the, the, the bees gather from, the, from pine trees and pine needles. And the honey is amazingly flavored um, with with pine. And um, in a sense, you can think of grape leaves as having a pine-ish flavor. Mm. Um, so we use it a lot. I can tell you all the kinds of things I use red cena in. I I uh, I soak salt cod in it. Believe <laughs> <laughs> it or not, after that story, um, I wrote down so I wouldn't forget all the things I put it in. And it's, it changes constantly, but I, oh, I do. One of my favorite phyllo pies is a mushroom pie, and I've soaked the mushrooms in retsina mm. and then combined them with leeks and uh, put them in layers and layers of phyllo. It's a savory pie. Um, I pickle my op- octopus in retsina. Wow. Um, 
I uh, marinate my little fish, fried fish, the meridas, mm. in, um, in a lemon retsina sauce. And I um, mix the retsina currants you know, with rice and a lot of other ingredients to stuff chickens. So actually, I use, um, not very many people use um, the kinds of Greek ingredients that I use all the time. I yeah. use blood oranges. I use pine nuts. I use uh, malepi. I use... Um, uh, uh, masticha, mm. um, all kinds of, um, I cook with um, the spice brandy from Greece, metoxa. I use the herbs, the uh, sage and chamomile. I poach pears and chamomile. So there's many, many things that you can, you can now, do. And, is the retsina, is that something that you came up with, Susanna, as far as soaking in retsina, or is that a common practice where you saw it in some of the areas in Greece? No, I did not see it. I, I invented that. Good for you. Just wow. like I invented this dish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, soaking. So a lot of us will cook with wine, but has anyone here soaked their ingredients with wine? Not me. No, that's, I'll tell you that. <laughs> that's, that's taking it to a different level. That dynamic itself, just thinking about it was like, wow, why didn't we ever think of that? <laughs> Uh, we we have a comment, if I could just... Uh, so, Georgia Balafa says that she has uh, raisins and white wine for rice. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Very cool. Well, we're coming over to Georgia's house for rice. So, now, <laughs> quickly, let me tell you about the about the pine flavor. Nowadays, um, in making it, as Foti said, um, wine cuttings or um, pine cuttings are put in the fermentation process. But in ancient times, the Greeks did not have French oak like French wines, and their barrels were pine barrels because um, their, Greece was covered in pine trees. And in fact, it was quite available because Solon, um, who was the wise leader of Greece, wanted the pine trees cut down so that they wouldn't take the land and, and olive trees could be put in. Hmm. Now, the problem with that, the wonderful thing about that is that the wine was in these casks and had, especially from Attica, it's famous from Attica, had the wine flavor. The problem is is that olive trees only have a single tap root instead of a root system. And so they uh, planting the whole country with olive trees depleted the soil terribly, which is as we know today, which is losing its soil. It's very arid. And there's a big effort to get the pine trees planted again. Back in Solon's time, you could be um, uh, um, uh, executed for um, cutting down an olive tree. And, and it's still terribly important in Greece, but um, but we're, there's an effort to claim the soil back by planting this with root systems. Wow, that's that's just, that's, that's amazing. This this is what I come to these webinars for. I, I love the, the recipes and the cooking, but the, the knowledge, the knowledge is what I come for. Susanna, for a long yeah. time, for a long time, uh, unfortunately, Greece's wine industry was um, held back or was this bad stigma about Greek wine being this awful resonated wine. And I think it was because there was a misconception and not understanding what Retsina was. Uh, yeah. And there were uh, several things happened. One is during the Ottoman empire, the Greeks hid their wine. And so um, they didn't allow very much of it out. And then when they began to get colonized by people again, like the, like the, the British, um, they, they served them essentially what they considered plonk, the British word for you know lousy bar stuff, wow. instead of the better wines. Um, and and they, they kept their culture hidden, and they kept their winemaking hidden. And 
Um, and indeed, you find a cuisine in Greek restaurants in many places, the taverna cuisine, which is the usual pastizio and moussacans. Um, um, and yet Greek cuisine is not like that at all. It's an incredible cuisine, um, mark a fresh seasonal based cuisine. Um, and I, I have to laugh that even people think uh, Greek salad always has tomatoes in it. No upright Greek would put a tomato in a salad until it was a good ripe tomato at the end of summer. Mm-hmm. Right now, the same salad is, would, be, would be done with radishes. Wow. Um, a month ago, it would have been done with cabbage. The same olives and capers and feta, um, as be, but, uh, but oh, cool. not the tomatoes until they're ripe. So you know, basically, whatever is in season. Yeah, everything is absolutely season-based. And I have to say, that's my best advice, even as as a cookbook author and, and advising on cooking, just plan your meals by season. Right now, for example, they're not here on this table, but I just bought blood oranges so that I can do um, my chickens and my duck in a blood orange with mm-hmm. metoxa, probably, and sesame. Susanna, have you ever thought about opening a restaurant? Ah, <laughs> as much as I've thought about varicose veins. Uh, <laughs> I've actually had two restaurants. I had a very famous one in California called Che Panis. I was one of the first owners. And then uh, the first cook um, with me there, Victoria Wise, who is, helped me on all my cookbooks, including the Olive and Caper, uh, is the co-author with me. Not just to help, she is my co-author. Brilliant cook. Um, we had one together called The Good and Plenty. Um, but I don't think I would ever do it again. I mean, right now, I'm. Um, it would make me a worse disaster than writing about disasters does. <laughs> all right, all right. So then, if, if that's the case, then maybe we'll just you can just host dinners and we'll just just invite us. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm happy. Just fly me in, and I'll invent the uh, the, the the menu, and we'll have a big dinner. All right, Father, you and I have to open a place and then have uh, Susanna be the, the, the consultant. Well, I, I got to say, not to take away from the experience, but real quickly, I do want to make a comment based on what we were just discussing. Many, many years ago, when I was a partner in a restaurant uh, concept in Boston called Meze, we had the honor of having Suze- Dr. Susanna with us with a wine dinner where we picked recipes from her cookbook, The Olive and the Caper. And we sold out this dinner with a hundred plus people. Wow. To this day, I still get folks that I bump into that will remind me of that experience that they've never had anywhere else before. So yes. So that's amazing. I love doing it. I'd love to do it again. Excellent. So let me turn to what we have tonight and the Retsina that's going with it. Why don't you talk about this particular Retsina and then I'll go on. The Moscofilero that you got. So, Zana, can you uh, ask Ron to turn the camera on? I think I turned it off by mistake when I was admitting people. Ah. <laughs> while while Fati talks Ron, about the Red Sea. A glass of. Uh, <laughs> As Susanna gets uh, prepared, um, you know, Red, Red Sina for me has been that category that has always cringed people that I've either discussed or recommended or explained it. But there's a special place for this type of wine in the Greek culture, and I think also food culture, for that matter. But also, I think uh, Retsina has a place in many different cultures as far as food goes. I don't know yet. But um, let me ask him to. I'll, ter- I'll ask him to turn on. Sorry, Foti, give me one second. He should see. Uh, he should see something on his computer to turn on his camera. I know we had it on before, but I, I shut it off by mistake. Why well, you just ruined the whole webinar, Ari? <laughs> God, Fati, you but go. as as I was saying, Retsina, um, some of us that are on tonight have probably had it. 
Some of us have heard about it. Some of us maybe have felt that we'd had bad experiences with, with it because for those of us that might have traveled to Greece and, you know, ordered the local wine and that was the choice, you know, a sip of a white wine that's, re- you know, just the flavor is just resonated with pine isn't always appealing at, at first. But over the years, um, a lot of producers, especially today, uh, today's wine producers have really taken Retsina to a different level where they've been able to master the balance of producing a very crisp, light, and herbaceous white wine. You know, when you think of those terms collectively, it sounds intriguing. Where before, when you use the word pine and resin, they're not as inviting. But the fact that, you know, the re- the pine resin can produce a very elegant, in my opinion. So t- tonight we're having a production from the winery in Atiki called Milonas. Milonas Winery is uh, a very... A reputable, respectful winery that is true to its roots in Attica, and they plant a lot of a a local variety called Savatiano. So Savatiano is the variety that makes most of the Retsina in Greece. It's a a white grape that makes a lot of delicate, crisp white wines, but it's also the base for making uh, Retsina wine. And Retsina wine is basically white wine production, as I mentioned before, with the inclusion of a dose of pine resin that goes into the early stages of fermentation and then it's removed um, so that it gets that faint essence and flavor. Other producers like to play around and get creative, but if you haven't had it before, we definitely recommend exploring this white wine with food because mainly it's been offered at the table with any type of dish that is pretty much olive oil, lemon, and herb-based dishes, which is basically the Greek cuisine. Um, We've uh, we, there's all this misconception. There's these myths and there's these stories about what Retsina is. I've heard stories about the fact that you know, during, uh, Susanna mentioned during the Ottoman Empire, you know, the Ottomans wanted to destroy Greece's wine culture and they added pine resin to the wine to destroy it. You know, there's all these myths about it. But at the end of the day, I think there was this. Uh, there's and Susanna, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been recordings uh, with ancient merchants who loaded up their vessels with food, water, and wine for their voyages, that they would store their white wine in these clay vessels. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the only um, ingredient or recipe they had to create a a seal uh, for to cover their their vats was this uh, combination of pine tar and resin uh, that created this uh, adhesive that would seal the top of the of these um, amphoras so that no air can get into the wine. But during their voyages, where these were stored below in the vessels, it would get so hot that the this adhesive would melt and it would drip into the wine, which would actually taint the wine with this pine resin flavor. I've gotten that story and recollection from a lot of reputable sources that those are basically where it started from, but maybe you can maybe enlighten us and maybe if there's more to that. I think that's a little bit of ex post facto thinking of trying to create <laughs> how it happened. Um, we're not sure. Um, uh, we do know that before they put it in Ampora, uh, that it was kept in um, pine cask because that was the wood that was available. We also know that pine and pine resin acts as a preservative. And so it might have been added as that. I had myself had not heard the seal story, although that makes sense too. Now, um, you have to realize that even back in the ancient days, they knew the vineyard that wine came from and the year it was um, 
um, processed and uh, made into wine. And the amphora were marked just like we do today. Oh. And everybody's always considered, oh, that they just made any old wine. They didn't. They were extremely picky about what wine and what. Um, I mean, Aristotle, I love this story. On his deathbed, he asked for the white wine of Samos in particular to die with. Which wow. so he knew exactly what he wanted. You also have to remember that in those days, um, they watered down the wine, usually three parts water to one part wine, um, sometimes four. And there was even a very special wine, which one wine company now has taken the name of, a special one called Thalassia, uh, and which was made, was watered down with seawater, salt water. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, and wow. that's where that name comes from. And that's a very ancient word, by the way. It's the only one of the few words in Greek that has a double S in it. Uh, it comes from pre-Indo-European, um, as do some of the stories I'm going to tell tonight, like the goddess Samantha, who became... Um, which is where we get the word mint. She was turned into a mint plant because she did something fairly offensive. Uh, she fell in love. She was a naiad, which is the kinds of nymphs that hung out with water, not ocean water, but fountains and streams and lakes. And she was the nymph of a lake that existed in Hades. And she fell in love with the god Hades and she was madly in love with him. And, uh, now, you have to question her judgment because he had 115 wives and 140 children. So you wonder what did she think she was up to? But at any rate, already by then, Persephone was his uh, supposed wife, uh, one of the wives. She had been taken, of course, uh, kidnapped from her, uh, her mother goddess Demeter. She mm -hmm. was down with Hades and she got very, shall we say, um, unhappy with <laughs> Mentha's attraction to her husband. And we don't know because the stories are different, but either Persephone herself or her mother Demeter in protection turned this nymph into a green plant. And oh. it is. <laughs> And now, uh, the other thing, of course, that's interesting is, um, you know, Greece, they gather about 125. Some people have set up to 300 wild greens. So wild greens of all kinds have been in the cuisine from, uh, from the beginning. And in fact, even when I lived in Santorini, we would go out often in the mornings and gather dandelion and cresses and other kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. um, and certainly a lot of herbs, oregano and sage. Um, but um, mint likes to be around water, so it makes sense. It's like mm -hmm. a crest, and you'll find it there. Oh, my God. I love those stories. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I, can, I can relate to Hades, you know, with, with all <laughs> the, the women. Like, you know, I, I have that problem. My wife, just she hates it, so I, I can relate. She needs to turn you into mint. <laughs> <laughs> I could think of some other things, but um, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. Towards the end, you can you can get back at me. Don't you 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 just do your thing. <laughs> There's two names for, um, and all of these these two belong to an um, the umbellifore family, which is named because the leaves spread out like an umbrella. Um, this is parsley, and parsley in Greek has two names. Maithano is the one that's commonly used. But it's also called petroselino, which means rock celery. And mm -hmm. it is related to celery. Um, and, but, um, and at the times, in ancient times, of course, they weren't as developed or hybrid as the kinds of stuff we're getting now. So you can imagine that it was a kind of wild celery-like leaf coming out of rocks. And um, 
that. And so these are both used a great deal in Greek cuisine. Celery, um, parsley has a particular thing. It is, it is, the myth of it is that there was an infant who uh, died, who was, um, un, his babysitter left for a few minutes, a serpent bit him, he bled to death from that wound, and his name was changed to um, Archimorphos, which is the, the leading or the, the preliminary to death. And, and oh. parsley is used in funeral ceremonies um, in, throughout not only Greece, but it became that throughout almost Indo-European culture. So um, it was considered in England that if you planted, uh, if a, a virgin planted uh, parsley in her garden, that she would be married to the devil. Whoa. Or that if parsley was not growing in your garden, well, it meant that somebody in your family was going to die. So it has a very oh, curious geez. mythological history to it. So are you saying um, not to plant parsley in the garden? <laughs> I plant it every year. So when I'm still Uh-oh. <laughs> so I'm going to make this a pesto. It's very simple. It's very, very fresh. And I don't know whether it can maybe... So um, let me see. Uh, so right now we're seeing the pita and the two wine bottles. Okay, there we go. Yep, perfect. So let I'm me do. Start... A, I'm gonna. I'm gonna focus on your hands now. So you okay, can great. Going. This is um, olive oil. I'm gonna use about a half a cup. Some Cuisinart. Now I get my olive oil from Greece. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. The Terramede, which I I happen to like a lot. Um, now, the olive oil from Greece is, there are no big corporations. It is all family-owned. There's some cooperatives, but there's no corporation. So the quality is amazing. And I suggest that when you go buying your olive oil. Now, Italy tends to buy a lot of Greek olive oil and then claim that it's, um, it's uh, Italian, and it's not. Uh, Spain has done the same thing. Spain buys a lot of North African olive oil and puts it under Spanish labels, but you can't get that with grease. So um, it's my thought. And I keep it, and you should. A lot of people keep it in glass. That's not good for olive oil. Um, oh. It tends to spoil a lot. So my little decanter is um, dark. And you keep your can in a, in a dark place. And, ah, and interesting. Okay, okay. The rule of thumb, Susanna, is don't store it in glass. Don't store it in glass unless it's it's um, a dark glass. Oh, okay. But if it's clear, and don't have it sitting on your counter in the sun, you know, especially that way. And if you have a big can and decant like I do as I go along, keep the can in a closet. I have a I have a I have a dumb question. Yeah. <laughs> what happens if you put your olive oil in the refrigerator? I never do. Okay. Oh gosh. I've never done that. Okay. Um. So I, who, I can't answer that. Like who who does that, Fati? Yeah, who does that oh, quote? I think the I think the is speaking. <laughs> so, so dark I'm place. Put in, huh? Dark. The, so the key is dark place, no glass, or no, dark. no clear glass. No, no clear, clear glass. glass. Okay, very good. And then it should last. And you know, it also has a very low heating point, so it's not the best frying oil. But if you're a sauté cook like I am, it's terrific for sautéing and you Ooh, know, yes, quick cooking and yes. roasting. But um, if you're, it's not a good frying oil. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm taking the mint I just talked about. This is about. Um, let me see what I. Oh, it's a half a cup of mint that I'm adding to this olive oil, and this is two thirds cup parsley. It, it, it even, it, even if it's a, a, a associated with death, 
Okay. Little, <laughs> um, I'm putting in uh, five tables, five to six tablespoons of um, pine nuts. Now, um, I don't know if you see, but these pine nuts are Greek or um, Italian. They're long and thin. As uh, hold it up. To, hold it up a little higher. There you go. Yeah. As opposed to the, the Chinese ones, which are uh, more round and more fat. And there's a difference in flavor. Um, as an anthropologist, I can tell you that where there were uh, Native Americans who lived on pine nuts, the Shoshone mostly, and oh. it was very difficult because they only come in about every seven years and you never know which bunch is going to come in. So oh that's gosh. kind of why they were nomads, but we called them tethered nomads because they had a central place where they would all gather and then they would disperse to find out you know, where, the, where good gathering was and then they would... Um, come back yeah someone is saying on him you can do olive oil and refrigerate as long as you bring it to room temp before you use it because it does solidify in a refrigerator okay. all right so uh, a quick uh, comment uh we just received susanna um joanna joanna said uh i store olive oil that will sit for long periods of time if i don't consume them on a regular basis i'll leave them in the fridge to preserve it and i just bring it to room temperature before i use it uh, because it solidifies. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there that somebody commented. Yes. Whether that's... that's, that's well, I, I, I have never had any problem with um, uh, with it lasting a long time in, in a three-liter can. Um, okay. But maybe I just, um, especially with the pandemic, I'm doing a lot of cooking. <laughs> cooking, cooking, cooking. I've been through... Probably every vegetable known to humankind, and uh, and not and not, and not one invite to Foti and I. I don't know. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I've got five uh, five to six tablespoons of um, pine nuts and uh, five to six tablespoons of kefalotiri or kefalograviera. And if you can't find them, you can use Parmesan or a Romano. So typical of a me- most pestos. So basically, Susanna, a sharp cheese. It's a sharp, hard cheese. Sharp, yes. Hard. Um, here is um, trying to remember the amount. Oh, three about three tablespoons of the currants. Now you don't have to soak them in retsina, um, but I do, and I just keep them and I use them all the time. I use my, you know, as I said, a chicken like I did retsina. I use currants. I use currants on my lamb shanks. I use currants um, uh, in, uh, again, a sauce for chicken, um, poultry. I even put them, obviously, I put them with yogurt on kefetis, zucchini ones or cauliflower ones especially. Um, That that and a little cilantro or parsley um, sprinkled on top and some pine nuts and then on a bed of yogurt. So, Susanna, do currants grow uh, all over Greece? Is it a common... Berry? Well, what we are calling currants aren't really currants. Oh. The real currants are on a bush and they're Northern European. The currants that you have available and we use now, we are now all think of currants pretty much, are actually tiny, tiny grapes. And they grow in Zakynthos. And then they're dried. Now, in the old days in Greece, of course, anywhere you went, you saw um, grapes drying in the sun on rooftops. And um, which is even how uh, Vinsanto is made. The real Vinsanto is from grapes that have been dried on the roofs of Santorini. Um, um, but um, I, I don't know where else those little tiny grapes are grown. 
um, but that's what they are. You can get real currants from the current berry from England or Northern France at times in a grocery store, and you can get red currant jam that is made from the actual real currants. How um, these little raisins got the name currant, I'm, I actually don't know, but that's we what gotta you find, get. We got to find out. All right. I mean, I, I said before, I, I think it's it's pronounced currant. Is that uh, it's right? a hot currant, right? <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> now, um, I'm going to put in um, two to three or whatever you like um, cloves of garlic. And I wanted to show you all a trick. Um, since this is going to be, these are going to be smashed up anyway. It doesn't matter if you smash them. So instead of sitting there being crazy, peeling them, take another one that I'm taking. Let's see, this is on my coffee table. So it's Wait, so, 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 let, uh, so if you could do it a little bit to the... There you go. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. And just take the flat blade of your chef's knife. Now, this is an eight-inch chef. Um, I like globals because they stay very, very sharp, and I keep my knives very sharp. Um, for my hand, and I'm not a you know I'm not a tiny woman. I'm slender, but I'm five eight. Um, but an eight inch is enough for me. Uh, my son, who's a great cook, uses a ten inch. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so you just take the flat of the blade of your knife. And squish on top of the uh, garlic, and the peel comes right off. Perfect. So, there you go. Um, and as I said, since it doesn't matter, you're going to crunch it. Sometimes you really smash them. So I'm throwing in one. I'm going to throw it. Oh, so, you, so you're throwing them whole, whole cloves. Uh, it just yeah. all goes in a Cuisinart, and it's done. So I've already added uh, cheese, currants, mint, parsley, um, oil, a pinch of salt. Now, again, if you cook a lot like I do or you want to, you know, you don't use a salt shaker. You use a salt cellar and you measure by pinching. So it's always available. I mean, I can just reach over and always get my pinch of salt and not have to deal with something like a, a shaker. I am now putting in the other garlics. Gosh, I wish I could smell that garlic right now. I'll tell you, I'm, I have the dish right oh. next to me, and it's, oh, my you God. Kind of, if you stop to think about what is a country sound, not how it looks, um, maybe not even how it necessarily smells, but how it sounds, to me, Greece sounds like plunk, plunk, plunk <laughs> of women peeling garlic yeah. and dropping them into a bowl. I mean, it's amazing. Everywhere you go, there's this plink, plink, plink. <laughs> the minute I hear it, I recognize it. Now that you mention it. So I think I've got it all there. Um, I need a top. Ah. Just hit puree. I'm not going to scrape it out for, in front of the camera because it's too messy. Um, um, obviously, the other instrument you need is a spatula to get it out and scrape it up. And here we here we go with the finished. Hold, hold it. I'll hold it to uh, Ron's camera. There mm. you go. Nice. And it's. I got to tell you, I can't keep it more than a few hours. If I put it out on a table, it's gone. I mean, the currents just. Uh, Bring it up amazingly. Fody was saying Fody's eating it steadily. Fody, um, let me uh, let me ask you. Hold on, let me uh, let me put let me put the spotlight on you, Fody. Show us your version, Fody. So I and just give us give us a quick uh, explanation how 
How easy, difficult, uh, straightforward? On a scale of one to 10, one being hard, 10 being easy, this was a 10. Um, it took me less than 10 minutes based on the ingredients that uh, Susanna just mentioned, right into the Cuisinart. And immediately, the second I released the cover, aromas just smacked me in the face with that uh, pronounced garlic um, and then all that herbaceousness from the mint and the parsley. But from a textural standpoint, oh man, um, it's all about texture, I think, in my opinion, when it comes to your taste buds. I think we feel first before we taste, right? And That's one- deep, Fati. That's deep. Well, I mean, <laughs> what it's all about. We're getting deep here. But I mean, I've had, we've all had our fair share of pesto, right? I mean, um, pesto too now is trending in a lot of different cuisines. Um, and I find that this particular recipe, with the addition of the, the currants, um, just takes it to a different level. The dynamic of the currants in this pesto is out of this world. And I'm so happy that I got to experience this with you all together. But um, what also puts this into perspective is when you listen to Susanna talk about it and then taste it, I've, I've tasted this before the segment and I'm tasting it while we're doing the segment. Now that I'm having it, it tastes psychologically beyond this world before I had it uh, during the segment, if that makes any sense. I think that there's an appreciation that resonates with us when you understand certain aspects, history, the background, and then when you taste something, you start to understand and appreciate what's going on. So this is, in my book, uh, or in my opinion, um, two thumbs up or two glasses up. Two currents up. Two currents up. (laughs) Um, In clues while I'm at it, um, you might think, oh, but I have to take pluck leaf by leaf by leaf of these herbs to get um, two-thirds cup of parsley, one-half cup of mint leaves. You don't. The trick we use for quickly is you hold a stalk. Now, they're kind of stringy now because it's winter. Near Mm -hmm. the top, you can't do it all the way up, but near the top, and you just run your hand down the stem, and the leaves come off. Ah, beautiful. So... There's the stalk, and I've already taken the leaves off except the very top ones, and then you can just pluck those. So instead of spending, you know, 15, 20 minutes plucking all of those, that was uh, that one was parsley. I'm doing the same thing right now on mint. You just go poop like that, and there's the Well, Susanna, I'm a little upset with you at giving me a healthy fear of ever planting parsley. So I don't know if I'm going to get over that. Well, I don't know. I use a lot. I, I, I suggest you try it. And if you don't die, you're fine. <laughs> okay. Will do. So would it be wrong of me to plant parsley in Ari's garden? Oh, no, whoa, think... whoa. <laughs> no planting in my garden here. But um. So this is great, by the way, on lamb, obviously, because um, we tend to think of lamb and mint. Greeks don't think of that necessarily. But um, if you've got an American streak in you and you like mint on lamb, this Pesto is great. It's great oh. enough sandwiches with turkey or something. This is Greek pita. I hope you know the difference. Greek pita does not open in pockets. Mm. Greek oh. pita stays flat. And you put your gyro or something in it and you roll it around. Oh, okay. The ones that puff into pockets are Lebanese or Arabic or Turkish. But ours don't. Oh, you wrap. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like the fact that you actually pointed that out because that's important. I like the fact that, like, I think I know everything. But you're and really Susanna dumb. comes in and just, like, shoots well, me down left and right. 
Susanna, be, before we get to questions from our audience, I need to make two points. I wanted to reference two points. One is, correction, I did not make the pesto tonight. My wife, Sophia, made it. I was just tasting it. Did she yell at you? Yes, she did. So second <laughs> is that... It's only Greek that was of you. <laughs> and then second is that you mentioned that in your cookbook, um, the pesto is also used to soak figs. Oh, can you, yeah. can you just include that real quickly? Because that fascinates me about soaking your figs. And in, in, in Retsina or pesto. And you know what else I do with them? I open them up and they come out in three leaves. And I fill them with, um, or I pat on toasted sesame. And I slap two p- figs together. And I have a ses- sesame fig sandwich. <laughs> I love that. Wow. You're taking it to a different level, but... Um, Again, I mean, let me, like, you're, ha- you open the retina, you're now having I'm the pesto. Eating, yes, I'm eating my pesto. For me right now, Ari, um, and for our audience, having the, having the pesto, having the wine with it takes it to a different level. So, um, again, uh, wait, let me, let camera on. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. The muscle feeler yeah. That, that's what I was just going to ask. Hmm? I was just going to ask uh, to to tell us once again which uh, wine you're you're pairing right now. So we have a couple of wines, Ari, and in general, for our folks that are listening that don't have either or, I mean, this dish um, calls for light, crisp, acidic white wines mm-hmm. that have, that have a lot of structure. So the Retina, definitely because of the the Sabatino grape, the pine resin that's in it. Uh, Susanna just. Uh, just put up to the camera a white wine from the Peloponnese parts of Greece made from a grape called Moscofilero. Moscofilero is, um, for those of you that have never had it before, I would like to maybe, not that it does justice, but to give you an idea, it's probably along the lines of a Sauvignon Blanc, right? In that in that wheelhouse of flavor and structure. Hmm. It's very aromatic, right? And there's a lot of um, aromas coming from Moscofilero. Moscofilero, I've been told, translates to a floral muscat. A lot of uh, aromas of flowers come to, to, to mind, followed by a very crisp body of structure that's uh, citrus. Um, lime lemon always comes to mind when you're having Moscofilero. It finishes with that limey flavor. And not to, not to kind of put this into perspective, but sometimes Ari has had this experience of having a lot of tequila shots with the lime, lemon and salt. I don't know if that's true, (laughs) but but you know, that, uh, that limey uh, aftertaste is what, what, how Moscofilero finished to me. It has that great citrus essence on the finish. So those components in the wine work tremendously, in my opinion, with dishes like this pesto that have olive oil, garlic, um, just a little bit of that fattiness from the olive oil as well works with uh, Moscofilero, but this is what we try to bring to light. We try to bring the balance of the flavors and structure of food paired with the structure and flavors of wine that are from that region, that area, right? It's, it's all about, you know, sometimes you think about, I get folks that ask me, like, you know, they drink or taste wines from a specific area by itself, and it doesn't connect with them. But then when they have it with food from that area, it makes sense, right? So there's a, there's a reason for everything. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned the aroma. It is very perfumey. Yeah, but I have to remind you what the word aroma means. It comes from homa, which homa. is Greek for dirt, and it originally meant the smell of newly turned soil. 
soil. When you were plowing from the that's early a, days. That's a good point you mentioned, uh, Susanna, because for those of us that are into wine, we love wine, we want to learn about wine. Aromas are released from when you pour your, your wine into a glass, but all that's driven, the aromas are driven by the components of the grape in the soils that they're planted the in. Soils. So smelling the soils. Does that, yes. That's wild, but that's the reality of what's happening. That's why we can talk about some wines as being um, loamy or earthy, earthy or even bark or <laughs> even tobacco. Because again, as you pointed out, it depends on the the same earth around that is um, um, the, the perfect bed for those different um, kind of products that would grow near there. Oh. Right. It's, it's fascinating that you just mentioned that a lot of vineyards around the world and in Greece a lot of vineyards plant, they have other plantings in their vineyards, mm-hmm. aside from their vines or their grape vines. And sometimes I think what they've mentioned to me before is that the vines, as they grow, they kind of intertwine with other plantings that are there. And there's some romance going on with grape vines and other plantings that are there as well. I mean, that's another, that's a topic for, that's a, that's a discussion <laughs> topic. Must be one of the, the favorites, um, but also it's efficient farming. It's yes. a way to have another crop, and especially if you do herbs. Now, we're not, we did the two herbs tonight, and I'm sure in our other sips and dips, we're going to get to other ones. But, uh, you know, for example, the, well, for one thing, there's many kinds of, of mint. Um, we only tend to know two or three kinds, uh, peppermint and spearmint. Oh. Um, in Greece, again, I said you would gather uh, all kinds of things. Um, but one of my favorites that also affects the wines of areas is sage, and especially mountain sage, which is in mm. the such sunlight is incredible in Greece. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, one, the name in Greek is Faskomilo. Faskomilo. Yes. And as you mentioned sunlight, I've been told that there are certain parts of Greece where the sun shines almost 300 days a year. Oh, yeah. That's well, the Cyclades, which are having problems because they're never getting any rain, mm. um, that the sun 365 days um, practically. And of course, um, what things grow on in the Cyclades or in Santorini um, is the dew. It's morning dew. That's almost the nutrition that a lot of these plants get is that morning dew because irrigation is not possible. <clears throat> uh, rainfall is a minimal. So it's basically the overnight or that morning dew that really uh, provides that nutrition for a lot of, not nutrition, but re- you know, the adequate water supply for these plants. Yeah, which is why they're so hardy and so aromatic from Greece. I mean, they're intense because of the sun and the very light moisture, just mm-hmm. enough moisture to make it. And, uh, and you'll notice, for instance, the tomatoes of Santorini or many of the Cyclades are tiny, tiny tomatoes. They don't have the moisture to get um, fat, but the, when you process them or when you use them in cooking, they're so intense, they're black. Oh, they, they pack yeah. a lot of flavor for tomatoes. These little... I love it. God, they're amazing. Wow. Ari, I mean, we can definitely open this moment right now to let any of our guests ask anything they want to Susanna, uh, provided that, you know, this is eye-opening, the history, the background, the roots of what we just discussed. We are, yeah. I mean, there's no questions right now, but let me just say, like, I say it every time Susanna's one of our guests. I'm going to say it again. Like, I can't get in. I am... I'm a, I'm a history buff. I'm fascinated by anthropology. Um, 
I'm not fascinated by the disaster part. I know the disaster part is what uh, introduced you to Fawthi because uh, Fawthi is a disaster himself. But I'm fascinated by the the history, the anthropology. I, these segments with you, Susanna, are such a treat for somebody like me because I I I love I love learning about this stuff and every single segment we've had you on what five six segments more. I don't even remember. And every single time I'm like, well, she's basically said what she said. She basically taught me what I, what, what I'm going to be taught. There can't be anything new. And every segment you, you bring it. I love it. And thank you so much for being with us for this segment. And how cool um, do you feel? I are you? The segment on, on, um, on, on Jim, Jim, because I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have Cody through this book. Um, actually, I met Fody because there was a wine dinner at Paul Delios's restaurant when he had one outside on the suburb of Boston. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was actually going to ask you guys that earlier. If it, you guys met at that, uh, uh, that wine dinner when you brought her to the wine dinner. Yes, yes. All right, I have a, I have a question. Let me. Uh... Okay, so Pamela says uh, this is great. Thank you. One of my questions is around olive oil. How do you feel? about flavored olive oil, such as garlic. I'm in California, so we can get locally harvested olive uh, from local farmers through our local food hub. Oh. I mean, I wouldn't mind it if you flavor it yourself. Um, if you put the garlic in the bottle and you, you cultivate your own flavored olive oil, I would be askance and wondering what somebody else did with it mm. and mm-hmm. and how how good the ingredients were, um, whether they're organic, um, do they put, do the, does their version of a hot olive oil with peppers in it too hot for me? Um, is, um, are the combination of, of herbs, sage or what? I mean, there's absolutely no reason with a number of containers like this or even a dark glass bottle and you can't flavor your own. And um, very good point. Certainly use it on a panini or just on a piece of phyllo. Um, or, you know, a sandwich or however you feel like you want to, or if you're sauteing, I mean, there's no reason that you would use the flavor oil to my mind in your sauteing, um, because you're going to throw in the herbs um, that you want in it anyway. I mean, typically in Greece, you would have used a lot of oregano, uh, marjoram and uh, thyme uh, and threamba, which is savory. Um, those that you could pick and sage, perhaps. Um, Although you have to be careful with sage, it can be very medicinal. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I have to admit, I use an herb that Greeks don't use a lot, um, and that is uh, I use tarragon. I have to admit, <laughs> it's a licorice flavor, you know. So, uh, well, uh, the the Pamela who asked the question also said great points. Thank you. Um, another comment came in. I love the olive and caper cookbook. Thank you for that comment, Joanna. And then another, John said, not a question, but a comment. Olive in the Caper is a top drawer cookbook. Perfect blend of food, culture, and history. I have scores of Greek cookbooks and hers, meaning you, Susanna, ranks with any of them. So thank you, John, for that comment. I got to say, Ari, Uh, the, the Olive in the Caper, I mean, from a cookbook format, I mean, it's so easy to follow. And it just makes you want to keep the book open all the time. Yes, I, I, I really, I really love that cookbook. I don't cook at all, 
So like the recipes don't mean much to me, but I read the olive and the caper because there's so much history in so it. There's so much like what knowledge you're saying, in it. What you're saying is you read the stories to, to your wife as she's cooking the, the yeah. recipe. <laughs> yeah, I, I have somebody with Got actual it. talent to cook, but I love to read the, the story, the, the background, the history. And again, I said this before, um, Susanna, you always bring such fascinating information, such fascinating facts and history and it, it just it's 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 you, you can't imitate this you can't duplicate it it's it's fascinating to me and and we are so thankful that you are on these with us well, on these webinars i got i got to mention real quickly that the way people used to live is reintroducing how we should be living in caves uh yeah you know what what's wrong <laughs> with that but susanna brings a lot of great points i mean we are designed to live based on our surroundings and our, and our, our environment, you know, you know, eating during this, you know, eating according to the seasons that we're in. And unfortunately today we can have anything we want at any given time, but does that, that, does that sound natural to you? So, you know, taking that approach to living according to the times that we're in, the seasons that we're in, I think goes a long way, not just from, from a mental perspective, but also from a physical perspective that, you know, we're designed in a way that we should be consuming based on our environment. And uh, I think there is something more to say about that as we continue these sip clips and dip clips with Susanna, how fascinating it is to live according to this structure of life. It is All right. so, uh, Susanna, we ate um, in Santorini was fava, with yellow, yellow lentils. That was our mainstay. And the way we made them different was uh, topping. We put an olive oil on or we'd put a different herb on or if it was uh, during lent we might put a small fish on um or uh that was that was a mainstay and i love also the way greeks eat which is um there'll be five or six things on the table one chicken even for eight people and then some fries and or then a macaroni maybe and then always a salad of some sort and then some vegetables mm-hmm. and then some horta greens mm-hmm. and then everybody eats out of everything yeah instead of and somebody getting a plate that's just theirs you know um Ari, I, Ari, that's called sharing <laughs> Ari doesn't share food <laughs> no i think there's it's something about that <laughs> part of like i it's it's definitely a practice that we've forgotten about, you know, sitting at the table and sharing plates. But I've noticed in the last handful of years, a lot of restaurants are introducing that shared plate concept. Uh, I have a, I have a quick comment. Around. If you're Greek, they're all in the center of the table and you stab. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Uh, quick comment from Susan uh, Manful. This has been great. I can't wait to make a pesto. Which book is that recipe in? Which is... Uh, is it the olive and the caper? Yes, it is. No, no, it's actually, it's on no, it's bold, not. bold. It's I was, uh, yes, yes. Correct it's in, me. It's bold. Tell them about bold. It's in bold. And also, I typed out for you guys a whole type version that you were yeah. supposed to be able to show. Yes. So we have that on the actual event page, and I'll also put that recipe on uh, the video and the podcast page after the fact. So you will have access. Um, okay, so we have another comment. Is that stuffed pig on the shelf behind Dr. Susanna? Just kidding. This is Susanna's <laughs> my daughter. daughter. Yeah, That's this is Susanna's daughter, daughter Gabby. And, and I can tell you. That pig comes from Ron, grew up on a pig farm. 
and that is a remnant. Well, well, of- she says she says this is his daughter Gabby, and I can tell you that my mom could inventive Greek food for me my whole life. Good oh. job, mom, and I can't wait for some Greek food or to go to Greece with you soon. Which mm. that's a great sentiment, Gabby, because I think Susanna probably really wants to go to Greece soon, and she probably will be able to go to Greece soon, hopefully. And you know what, Foti, I hope we could go to Greece soon, and I hope we could uh, meet up with well, Susanna. Well, some of these and get some of to, this, uh, you know, have to happen in Greece. We need to re- we need to be recording live on location. I think we need to do that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we need to have some of Susanna's friends from Santorini that she met over the years be Oh God, can they cook? They can cook. <laughs> awesome. Susanna, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. So you know you can't get me out of the house very easily as Foti knows, but I'm in. I'm in. Awesome. I, well, I just I'm finally mention- taking an airplane um uh, the end of the month. Of um, what I call my new skills day, meaning I have to do something I've never done before. Some people call it a birthday. I call <laughs> it a new skills day. That is April Fool's Day, which is perfect. And I get to see Gabby. I'm going to fly and see Gabby and Beautiful. my son and uh, the couple of grandchildren. It's going to be great. And and where where could I ask is Gabby? She's in Basalt, Colorado, which is just outside Aspen. Okay. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. And, and Ari, can I just mention, we just want to give a shout out to another uh, dear friend of ours who's in Utah, uh, Eleni Saltas, who was with us last week, who was a big fan of Susanna, is with us as well tonight. So we want to say thank you to her for joining us this evening, all the way from Salt Lake City. Um, but Ari, I hope you learned something today. Or- I always learn something when Susanna's involved. Right. Always. And, and- I'm telling you right now. From from a heartfelt comment here, I love these segments, Susanna. I really look forward to them. It's not just you know you know uh, wordplay here. I really do enjoy these segments. I love learning. Um, well, you know, I'm so smart. There's not that much I could learn, but you always seem to give me some more knowledge. Like it, it's amazing. Well, that's the point we want to drive. <laughs> we want to make sure that our audience and our guests get the same experience that Ari gets, because that's what it's all about. And we're super excited that we're going to be launching this series with Susanna, the dips and sip segments where we get to learn about, not just about the recipes, but the stories behind the recipe. And it's, and it's just fascinating. So we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. We want to thank Susanna, as always, during her busy schedule, because you just listen to what she's got on her plate. And it's not just food. It's it's more than just that. And we're so excited that we're going to have her with us. We want everyone to stay tuned and follow us to make to see the upcoming dates of when Susanna will be hosting with us her upcoming Sip and Dip Clips. Um and I we want we want we want everybody. Foti, I think we want, what we'll do Foti is go is do um, we'll go extensively into grape leaves. Perfect, Ooh. I love it because I grew up as a kid uh, in my early teens, driving during the summer times with my parents, pulling over on the highway because they saw <laughs> grape leaves that they wanted to pick for dolmadas. So yes, for me that hits at home, but. There's a science behind, I think, Dolmadas that I think, you know, you will bring it to light for us in our upcoming segments, but for sure. Uh, this is for us more than just a treat. It actually connects with us, but also it allows us to feature 
the cuisine in a way that most folks, even us as Greeks and Greek Americans, never knew about. That's what I think is the most fascinating part about this whole uh, scenario. Absolutely. That's what it is. It, it, like Susanna always brings so much more to just a standard cooking session. And, you know, in the meantime, in the meantime, I don't want to cut you off, Ari, but I don't want to forget, though, even though we have these fascinating books from Susanna, um, I know, Susanna, that we are able to, uh, on Amazon, um, There are you can find the Alvin the Caper on Amazon, or you can download it as an ebook. If, if uh, I-, I haven't been able to work that out yet. We just canceled it as an ebook uh, okay. fairly recently because they had cut the dessert section out, which was crazy, because oh the sauces I do on my baklava is malepi and coffee and things like that. So, I mean, I change stuff up a lot and um, it's all within the Greek realm, but it's mixing it up. We got I, I, I just, I just, but the book is out of print. It's true. So you do have to go hunt for a copy of it. And, um, and I promise you on Grape Leaves, we won't do Delmadas. There's other okay. things you can do. <laughs> awesome. Well, I just want to make a real quick point. Like, if you could get a hard copy in your hand, a tangible, holdable copy of this uh, cookbook. Did you say holdable? Please. Yes, holdable. Holdable, okay. You, you, you know that word because I, I reference you and holdable all the time because you're... Anyway, get that copy. Uh, get a tangible physical copy of olive in the caper if you can because it's an amazing yeah well we're going to work on seeing how we can bring that book back yeah we're working on it we're working on it all right so let's let's wrap this up everybody Susanna, thank you so much again amazing amazing information amazing recipes you are you know you're you're one of my favorites uh you know because like i said there's not many people who could teach me so when you teach me something, I am just excited about it. Wow. <laughs> and Poti, as always, thank you, man. Pairing everything, bringing us the knowledge of the wine. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Susanna, we will see you back soon. Soon, yes. Very soon. And, uh, and, and everybody out there, uh, please stay tuned. Follow us. Do everything. Download the apps, blah, blah, blah. We are here and we are going to bring you some great, great, great content. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Susanna. We will see you next time. We even do some classics. Yes. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Cheers.